Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit as we study these beautiful teachings of Pope Benedict as we study and seek to seek your holy face during this Lenten season. We ask you to strengthen us in the fasting days ahead, that having crossed the sea of the fast, we may behold the third day resurrection. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Doctor, it's all yours. All right. And, and just like we turn to volume three during Advent, we're now turning to the second volume for Lent. And so we are really making a pilgrimage through the Gospels with Pope Benedict as our guide. And of course, he didn't necessarily write them as such, but it's just so beautiful and fitting that we are reading them to go along with the liturgical seasons. And it reinforces a point that he is making, that the Gospels are not simply a record of the past. They are something that draws us both into the presence of Christ right before us, right? The living reality of Christ in which is ordered to the end. We get that today, the eschaton, the end, right? Jesus is speaking about that during the beginning of Holy Week. So there is something historical about this, of course, right? That's why we have to have the historical methods that, that he's been really dialoguing with. So we look at the past, but we address Jesus who is alive and is present to us through the mediation of the gospels but obviously also through the liturgy. Um, and we look forward to the fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of Jesus's teaching and inauguration of the kingdom. I want to take a little look at the forward. What we've seen in, in all of the three volumes is that the forward is the place where he kind of lays out his method. And in as a Thomas, of course, I just love this passage on, you know, page Roman numeral 16. So I-V-I, X-V-I, sorry, X-V-I, where he, he says that the closest thing that I'm doing in this book, um, this series of books, is really the third part of the Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas Aquinas. And that is, he's offering a theological reflection upon the life of Christ, the mysteries of the life of Christ, which are living and accessible to us in the liturgy. But he's also doing something new. I mean, let's let's not forget that because Aquinas was not trying to do an historical study. 
So really, if we were to summarize Pope Benedict's method, it would be looking at the history while going deep into the theology. So it's like biblical scholarship meets the church fathers. <laughs> um, but what does it look like at the end of the day? He says, I want the theological depth of St. Thomas Aquinas. Like, you know, I, I want to make him that real that we can come to know him and understand him. So it's, it's, it's really an interesting kind of theological blender. Right? <laughs> He's putting all of these things together. But I want to start reading at the bottom of that page, right? Roman numeral 16. He says, what, what's wrong with the quest for the historical Jesus? Something that we talked about before, right? That people trying to say, what was Jesus really like if, if we were there, right? From an historical perspective. He says, the problem with this is that, and this is three lines up from the bottom. It focused too much on the past for it to make possible a personal relationship with Jesus. In the combination of two hermeneutics, right? What are they? Of history and of faith, of which I spoke earlier, I've attempted to develop a way of observing and listening to the Jesus of the Gospels that can indeed lead to personal encounter. And that through collective listening with Jesus's disciples across the ages, right? From all of church history and throughout the world today, can indeed attain sure knowledge of the real historical figure of Jesus. And so in part one, he said that he was really trying to, to elucidate the figure and message of Jesus. And so now he continues on. This task is even more difficult in part two than in part one, because only in this second volume do we encounter the decisive sayings and events of Jesus's life. I have tried to maintain a distance from any controversies over particular points and to consider only the essential words and deeds of Jesus, guided by the hermeneutic of faith, but at the same time adopting a responsible attitude toward, his, toward historical reason, right? Not just throwing this knowledge off, right? Which is a necessary component of that faith, right? That Jesus is, you know, the incarnation is an historical reality. And because Jesus indeed lived 2000 years ago in Palestine, we can't simply say, ah, history, who cares? We're just, all we need is faith, right? That our faith itself is historical. And so he's saying, it's not like even an add-on to faith, but that our faith has an historical component. And so to elucidate that aspect, we need to attend to the historical knowledge. But this entering into the mysteries and realities of Christ with the communion of faith throughout all of time uh, is very important for understanding what we are doing during Lent. If we think back to the end of volume one, Jesus talked about you know, the, the predictions of the passion during this ascent up to Jerusalem. And, you know, it really begins with Peter's confession of faith. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then what happens afterwards? Jesus says, but the son of man must go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, suffer and die and rise again on the third day. And, and what does Peter say? By no means may this happen get behind me, Satan, right? And so there is the scandal of the cross that in order to enter into the messianic kingdom, there must be a following after Jesus in his ascent to Jerusalem. 
And I don't know if you noticed this, but Benedict begins the third volume with that same image. He's As Jesus is coming now into Jerusalem, Benedict is still looking at the ascent. And I would say that we can really think of the bulk of Lent, you know, really going up to Passion Tide. You know, Passion Tide traditionally is the last two weeks of Lent. Um, we, we have kind of lost that, right? And now, you know, we, Passion Sunday is Palm Sunday in the new calendar. But, but the last two weeks focused especially on the Passion, and, and Holy Week is really entering into the Passion itself with Jesus. And so we can think of this Lenten journey as an ascent with Jesus. And Benedict even presents this um, as an invitation, right? So it, this is really beginning at the bottom of page one, not Roman numeral right now. We're into the Arabic numerals, number one. To begin with, it is an ascent in a geographical sense. The Sea of Galilee is situated about 690 feet below sea level, whereas Jerusalem is on average 2,500 feet above. The synoptics each contain three prophecies of Jesus' passion, which, which we dealt with at the end of volume one, as steps in this ascent. Steps that at the same time point to the inner ascent that is accomplished in the outward climb, going up to the temple as the place where God wished his name to dwell in the words of the book of Deuteronomy. The ultimate goal of Jesus's ascent is his self-offering on the cross, which supplants the old sacrifices. It is the ascent that the letter to Hebrews describes as going up, not to a sanctuary made by human hands, but to heaven itself into the presence of God. This ascent into God's presence leads via the cross. It is the ascent toward loving to the end, which is the real mountain of God. And there's something interesting going on here, right? Because he's going to come back to this whole image of exitus reditus, this going out of and returning, exitus reditus. And he compares that to the theology of the philosopher Plotinus, right? Who in a philosophical sense popularized those terms, exitus reditus. Now, for Plotinus, the exodus is that all things proceed from God, but, but as a way, they kind of fall from him, right? The one is absolutely simple, but everything that proceeds is, is more complex, and it becomes bound up with matter. And this is problematic according to kind of ancient dualist philosophies, and Neoplatonism was one of those. And so the reditus has to be this leaving behind of the flesh and of this world to, to return to the simplicity of God. And Benedict uses that as, as an image of the passion, but he says Plotinus gets it wrong. God descends, the, the son in particular, right? The son of the father descends into creation, not as something bad, but as something good. It becomes not a fall, but an act of love. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Why? So that we could be born of God, right? John's very clear that the, the, the whole purpose of this descent is so that we could be born again as sons. And Jesus does return to the father. He says that I am going to the father, right? He says that very clearly. That's his ready to us. I am going back to the one from whom I came. 
And, you know, even the Jews are like, is this, is he going to kill himself? Right. You know, where he is going, we cannot come. Right. Is this guy crazy or what? You know? Um, but for us, this is not an abandoning even of our identity in the flesh because the flesh will rise again. So the, the ready to us is actually the redemption of the flesh, the sanctification of it from within. And it has everything to do with the temple, right? The ascent. So this is actually part of the ready to us, right? So the descent, the exitus is Jesus is coming into the world, but this ascent, this going back to the father, right? Begins in this journey up to Jerusalem and it's to the temple. And so what happens when Jesus comes into Jerusalem? He basically says, no, right? The temple is not serving its proper purpose. In a way he condemns the temple worship as failing to reach its proper end of union with the father. Right. And there is a, a switch at the Benedict notes from calling it your house, right? Your house will be abandoned because it's no longer the house of the father. Why? Because there is a new temple not made with human hands. It's him. And it is this temple that redeems the temple of our bodies, right? As we are reborn in him, that we become temples of the Holy Spirit, and this is this remaking of creation from within, not undoing it. And so the ready to us captures us up into this ark back to the father, right? Not, in a, not going away from the flesh, right? The flesh has a place in God. Jesus does not abandon his flesh in death, right? He takes it up again um, and redeems it not only for himself, but for all of us. So th th there is a lot of interplay of the exodus readiness of the ascent and descent that's going on here, because what does he say that the ascent is? It's a loving to the end. And that loving to the end in our reading today is actually symbolized by the washing of the feet. So what does that entail? Jesus bows himself down. Um, and in a way, Benedict says that embodies the whole descent, the whole exodus, right? So even as he's on his way back to the father, right? It, it is actually his greatest outpouring. The descent is taking on the form of a slave, of a servant. Um, and so we see that in the washing of the feet, but we actually see it most fully on the cross. He pours himself out for us. And this ultimate descent is what actually brings about the ascent. Right? <laughs> he goes down in the cross, down into death. And the ascent is able to reach its culmination precisely because of that, because that is how God then raises him up, vindicating him in the resurrection. And so I know that's a lot of interplay of ascent, descent, and going up, going down, but, but I think there, there's a richness here. And I want to actually draw this out more because the, the most profound reading that we had from that last section of volume one had to do with communion that Jesus was bringing about communion. And I, and I think we see a little bit more clearly how this happens, right? Because the communion is brought about through charity. This, this is how we are able to share in God's own communion. It's because of this outpouring of love in the descent of the sun. So let's turn to page 54. This is in the section of the hour of Jesus. 
And this is a little bit more than halfway down the page in that second to last paragraph. We'll start in the middle of that paragraph. With the Last Supper, Jesus's hour has arrived. The goal to which his ministry has been directed from the beginning. The essence of this hour is described by John with two key words. It is the hour of his departing. It is the hour of the love that reaches to the end. The two concepts shed light on one another and are inseparable. Love is the very process of passing over, of transformation, of stepping outside the limitation of fallen humanity, in which we are all separated from one another and ultimately impenetrable to one another, right? So we, we do not have communion into an infinite otherness. Love to the end is what brings about the seemingly impossible metabasis, stepping outside the limits of one's closed individuality, which is what agape is, breaking through into the divine. Right? What does sin do? Right? It, it isolates us within ourselves. It's a turning inward. That's what hell is. That's turning in on oneself and a refusal to come out of oneself into the life of the other. God is essentially communion and, and the incarnation is an extension of God's communion into time. Why? So that we can be drawn back, right? So the exit is ready to us. Jesus comes out of the father to bring us the father's life, but, but he draws us back right, through the Holy Spirit, back to the father. Let's continue here. The, the hour of Jesus is the hour of the great stepping beyond the hour of transformation. And this metamorphosis of being is brought about through agape, right? This metamorphosis of being, of, of all being, right? You know, that's it. He's remaking everything, right? From the inside, everything has been changed. He says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all things to myself, right? This pouring out of himself is a, is a new creation. And I think that's why John begins his gospel with this kind of creation story in the beginning was the word, because this is what it means for the word to become flesh. He, he is going to make things, right? He is a builder. He's the creator. And, you know, it's one of my, my sort of hobby horses always coming back to this, but the word carpenter actually should be better translated builder, right? He's building the church, right? He's building up this new creation from within. That's his mission, but he does it by, pouring himself out in love. It is agape to the end. And here John anticipates the final word of the dying Jesus to tell us day, it is finished. This end, this tell us, this totality of self-giving, of remolding the whole of being, this is what it means to give oneself even unto death. When Jesus speaks here as elsewhere in John's gospel, of having come from the Father and of returning to him. See, right? There, there it is again, right? One is perhaps reminded of the ancient model of exitus reditus, right? So we see him kind of move right into that. Okay. So I just want to see how, you know, that's how he really sets that up. It's, it's very deep. It's, it's, it's very rich theologically. But I want to make one farther connection because this is, I think, what will help us to see this in Lent. Um, so how, how does this impact us? This is the goal of Lent. This is the goal of conversion to come out of oneself, 
right? This, this redirection, the, the word conversion means a turning towards. So well, what am I turning away from? Well, that inward self-focus of sin, and I'm turning outward in love into communion, primarily to God, right? Because I can't really have communion with other people if I do not have communion with God. There's no genuine communion without communion with God, right? And so this is the idea um, that we really have to embrace. Not, when I say idea, right? I mean, thinking the word conversion in Greek is this metanoia, this kind of change of, of mind, this change of soul to put on Christ. And Benedict even says, see, I might have this marked here, but it is this turning away, he says, from the eye of myself and into Christ, right? This putting on, this is, that's on page 64, the, the bottom paragraph. It all depends on our eye being absorbed into his. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20, which I, I quoted earlier, the beginning of our study. We must let ourselves be immersed in the Lord's mercy. Then our hearts too will discover the right path. The new commandment is not simply a new and higher demand. It is linked to the newness of Jesus Christ to growing immersion in him, right? That, that's the metanoia, this whole change of soul, this change of my being into Christ. And so I, I want to make this connection then on page 72, right? So, sorry, going, going back to the, to the I was a little aside there as I was trying to make this final point. But, but how does this extend out to us? This is contrasting Judas and Peter. So the third line down on, uh, from the top of 72 he, Peter, must learn the way of the disciple in order to be led when his hour comes to the place where he does not want to go and to receive the grace of martyrdom. And in a way, you know, when Father was talking about real fasting, right, that's a kind of martyrdom, right? I mean, this, this conversion of my being that I live for my daily bread, which is Christ. I live not off of the daily bread of the substance of this world. The two exchanges are essentially about the same thing, not telling God what to do, but learning to accept him as he reveals himself to us, not seeking to exalt ourselves to God's level, but in humble service, letting ourselves be slowly refashioned into God's true image. Why? Because, you know, when Peter says, by no means should you go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. He's thinking with the logic of the world. And I think it's so easy for us to do that. By no means, Jesus, should we be simple and, and poor and, and humble and suffer and be hungry, and be up all night. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. And yes, yes, it is, right? I mean, to be led where you do not want to go, right? This is the conversion that we are called into. And I, and I think there's another really beautiful connection um, that we can make with Lent here as well, right, right in, in this section of, of the foot washing. Benedict, he goes on right on that same page, on page 72, in, into this kind of excursus about the washing of the feet and confession. And Jesus says, uh, you know, because, you know, Peter's like, you're not going to wash my feet, right? It's the same thing, right? You know, <laughs> where he's like, by no means you're going to suffer and die. By no means will you wash my feet, right? You know, this, the Messiah emptying himself out 
in being crucified, right? Because let's be clear, Jesus is being crucified in the world right now. Jesus is being crucified in the church right now. Absolutely, right? And and we say with Peter, by no means, by no means, you know? But when Jesus says, well, if you do not let me wash, you will have no part in me. Okay, Jesus, then wash everything, right? You know, that's, that's Peter, you know, <laughs> the one who just jumps in head first out of the boat and all, you know, all of that. Um, and he says, no, 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 Peter, Peter, let me explain this to you, right? You know, those who are clean, right? They, they, they do not need, you know, a, a whole bath, right? They, they just need their feet washed, right? Because they're walking around in the dirt. But where does Lent come from? The origins of Lent come from the preparation of the catechumens for baptism. That's the beginning of Lent that, you know, we even have this tradition, right? Of fasting, you know, black fast and good Friday through the Easter vigil. Well, who first did that? Catechumens in the ancient world. And then, you know, it kind of got extended out to like 10 days of fasting. Um, and people started joining in and, and, and the people who were joining in, right? They, they've already been bathed. But what did they need? They needed their feet washed. And so Lent arose from the preparation for the bath, the, the complete bath uh, for the catechumens who needed that because they, they were not made clean by Christ yet. And then other people began joining in to get their feet washed. Right? That, that's what we're trying to do. Okay, Lord, you have bathed me. I, I need I need a little touch up here. <laughs> you know, I, I need my feet washed, and so, you know, not three days, not ten days, forty days, uh, because Christ is alive, and the mysteries of Christ's life are alive in the church. The forty days in the desert are not gone; right? they are present to us because Christ is present to us. The ascent of the disciples up to Jerusalem, following Jesus. They're not gone. They're accessible to us. The mysteries of Holy Week, they're not just said and done. They're not just in the past. They, they are invitations to us. And, and I really want you to keep that in mind as, as we're going through this book, right? because this is the great gift to be reading this book right now is that we can do these things with Jesus, that we can take up our cross with Christ, that we can be cleansed anew in Christ. That is the very purpose of Lent. Okay, so that's my general overview. And I want to come back now and just hit a little bit of the details along the way. You know, what's the itinerary of our reading today? Well, the procession of Palm Sunday, the cleansing of the temple, the eschatological discourse, that's right, that discourse on the end of time, and the washing of the feet. Now there's some things that that are left out. Um, for and I, I gave one at, at the end here. You know, um, the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary of Bethany, who throughout tradition has been connected to Mary Magdalene. But there's been ongoing debates about that. But just let that sit for now. Um, and the cursing of the fig tree because. When we think about the cleansing of the temple, right? It has a lot to do with the, the parable of the cursing of the fig tree where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, right? And he sees the fig tree that is not bearing fruit and he curses it and it withers. 
right? And, and we see that this is the great time of visitation. This is when Jesus is coming to the vineyard on behalf of the father to look for fruit. And the cleansing of the temple is a sign that he's not finding it, right? And in a way, you know, why is it that the cleansing of the, the temple put him to death? Because when you, when you pay attention to his trial, and that's a, a really central accusation, you know, it had to do with, you know, the, the tearing down of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple, but it's, it, in many ways, it's occasioned by the cleansing. And it's because Jesus is, authored, is asserting authority over the temple. Well, who's the one who has authority over the temple? Ultimately, well, you could say the priest, but ultimately it's God, right? It's meant to be his dwelling place. And so Jesus comes and finds it devoid of fruit. Now, we could also add to the list of what's missing the raising of Lazarus. Now, that was treated very briefly by Benedict in the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And Benedict makes this connection to say, well, there, there is a connection here to, to the death of Lazarus from the gospels. And generally, we would say it is the week before Palm Sunday, right? But we can't actually place it on an exact day. And that was another catalyst, right? Towards Jesus' trial, that he raises someone from the dead. And what did he say? Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, right? So the, the raising of Lazarus is a sign pointing to his own resurrection, which is, which is coming. Now, Benedict just kind of mentions that there is a cleansing of the temple that happens at the beginning of John's gospel. And so, of course, scholars debate, well, when did it actually happen? Did it happen at the beginning? Did it happen at the end? Benedict says, well, I don't, I don't really want to get into, to, into that, but, but I would simply say that it's a, it's a real possibility, and I, I would even say maybe likelihood based on what the Gospels are telling us, that it happened at both. And because it's that central, right? The, the visitation to Jerusalem, the looking for fruit, in a nutshell, is what's happening in Jesus' ministry because it's not about the old building of the temple, that's not what the cleansing of the temple is really about. As I mentioned before, it's about the fact that there's a new temple. And so what do we see even at the, at the beginning of John's gospel in John 1, in the calling of Nathaniel, he says, you will see greater things than these, you know, that, that I saw you under the fig tree, right? You'll see greater things than these. You will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. What's he saying? that I am the one who leads to the Father. I am the presence of God on earth. I am the new temple. And so the, the entrance on Palm Sunday is significant to kind of mark the beginning of this hour. And Jesus allows himself to be welcomed as the Messiah because it is the inauguration of his hour, right? And so there, there's a number of things that Benedict points out here that the fact that he sort of takes his transportation, right? And, and why are there two animals? Um, well, there's actually a lot of documentation. You can see this is that, you know, royal figures and, and others would sit on, say, a, a larger animal, whether it's a, a donkey or, you know, the beast of burden, right? And sit sideways and a smaller one would be uh, walking alongside for the feet, 
And, and what's identified here is that Jesus is actually formally enthroned, right, mm-hmm. onto the donkey. You know, it's, it's so this, he, he requisitions it as this kind of royal prerogative. He is a, and kind of enthroned, installed upon it by his disciples. And, you know, some, you know, some of the gospel writers only point to, to one beast and others point to two, but the two would indicate that there's a smaller one alongside for his feet, right? So he's sitting sideways actually upon them. And that makes sense for a king, right? Because this is essentially his throne leading up to, to the throne actually, which is on the cross, because that's the great public proclamation of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, right? So this whole week is the time when he finally allows himself to be recognized um, as the Messiah. And, you know, a lot of the words that that are used, right? Hosanna, meaning like, come save, come to our aid, come save us is what Hosanna means. But it had a kind of messianic uh, overtone um, and, you know, laying down the clothing, and so forth. You know, palm branches were used to welcome pilgrims, but but this was even more intense than that. Benedict points out that, you know, this is primarily orchestrated by the disciples who are following Jesus in his ascent, right? And if we're following him in the ascent, I think that adds a, 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 an element to our own Lenten prayer that this is about welcoming Christ as King. Even when we think about the temptations, right, on the first Sunday of Lent, um, in a way, they are challenges to to him as Messiah. And so Lent does have, I think, this kind of kingly character to it, that Jesus is king in this great pouring out, and we are his followers, his true disciples, if we embrace this pouring out with him. Now, the cleansing of the temple, you know, I've really dwelt on this a lot, right, because of the way in which Jesus is pointing to himself as the new temple. But let's draw out you know, even just some of the historical details here, you know, Benedict looks at different theories of what's happening. Is Jesus establishing himself as a kind of Jewish prophet about teaching people about how the temple should be understood and how it should be used, kind of restoring it to, you know, it's kind of uh, pristine uh, place. I think we would say that that doesn't go far enough, right? Um, Is he actually leading a physical attack upon the temple, right? You know, there, there's certain people that, that would say that this means that Jesus himself was a zealot, right? That, that he's using violence, right? He's driving people out of the temple. And this is, this is his insurrection moment. And you, you know what? I mean, there's an element of truth in that first theory that Jesus is talking about the way that we should properly honor God and how we should understand the law. And this was a revolutionary moment, right? But what it wasn't was Jesus' attempt to establish a material form of government. But it was a revolution to say the old order is done, right? Benedict's very clear about that. The old order is done. And there is a new order with because there's a new temple. But there's something farther here as well. Um, Benedict says, well, you know, we don't really have to wonder that much what Jesus meant in doing this because he gave us the explanation. You know, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And so he looks at the, the role of the temple in drawing in the nations. And in a way, this is the lack of fruit, is that the temple is not inaugurating the kingdom of God for all the nations of the earth. That is the great failure that is happening here. 
And he points out that it is precisely in the rejection of the new temple, his body, that the new temple is actually inaugurated, right? So how does the old Jewish order pass away of temple worship and so forth? It passes away by the Jewish authorities trying to destroy the new temple. That's what actually destroys the old temple, right? And even though the old temple was not destroyed physically until 70 AD, we can say, why, why is there that gap? I would say so that the church could get established, right? Because if God literally destroyed the old temple at that moment, the church would not have been able to coalesce in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, right? So there is this gap that happens here, but he indicates, Benedict, that is, that there's even a number of signs of the temple being forsaken. He, there are others beyond the, the the one example that he gives. One is that, you know, the, the candles, could, the lamps could not stay lit upon the altar. And then there was even a voice in 66 AD, so a few years before it was destroyed, let us go hence. That was heard, right? And so, so this is being reported not by a Christian, right, but by the Jewish historian Josephus who was also pro-Roman, but, but nonetheless is generally accepted as a, a fairly reliable source. Okay, now I want to turn to this eschatological discourse, right? Eschatology being this kind of the study of the end, the end times. And this is what Benedict says is the most difficult of all of the teachings of Jesus. That, that's a statement there, isn't it? Of all the things that Jesus said in all of the Gospels, Benedict finds this one to be the most difficult. It's related in the Synoptic Gospels. He speaks about a redaction. So a redactor is a kind of editor who takes numerous sources and kind of puts them together. Why, why is Benedict so confident that this passage has been redacted? And I think it's because the, the Synoptic Gospels arrange it a little bit differently, you know, is that it seems clear that Jesus was talking about certain things. Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple. Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus was talking about the growth of the church. And Jesus was talking about the end of the world. And those things kind of got put into a blender. <laughs> and so like when he says, you know, this generation will not pass away until these things come to place. And, and that well, that's true, right? That Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And even the preaching of the gospel to the nations. I mean, Christians went to India in the first century. There's actually a little bit of evidence. It's controversial still, but they might've even gone to China in the first century. And they, they went to Spain, right? I mean, so as far East and as far West as their feet could take them. And they went across Europe, they went across Asia, they went into Africa. And so a lot of what Jesus said did come true. Did the end of the world happen? No, but, but Benedict actually redirects our attention here as well. He says that Jesus doesn't actually offer anything new about the end of the world other than himself. He says, oh, you know all those prophecies and especially Daniel, but Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and some other prophets... That, that was all about me. I am the son of man who was prophesied in those passages. And what did he say even at his trial? You will see the son of man coming on the clouds. And the, the great biblical scholar N.T. Wright, who, who's not engaged in this trilogy, but it's interesting. There's some parallels here, but it would have been interesting if Benedict had, 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 had engaged N.T. Wright. He's an Anglican bishop, retired now. 
but but he he points out that when Jesus says that you will see the the Son of Man coming on the clouds, he says that doesn't mean that you're going to see the end of the world. He said it means that you will see the reign of the Messiah being inaugurated. But when Jesus is saying stuff like that in this passage, we think he's talking about the end of the world, you know. And so N.T. Wright just draws out farther what Benedict is saying here. Jesus, more than talking about the end times, is talking about the inauguration of the reign of the Messiah. And part of that reign will entail the gospel going to all the nations, that there's this time of the Gentiles, right? The number of the Gentiles must be fulfilled. And so Benedict says that that's part of this urgency, that we must help bring about the full inauguration of the reign of the son of man by preaching the gospel, that we are agents of the spreading of the kingdom and that there is a kind of growth that Jesus is saying will happen in the church and which must take place for all of these things to occur. And so we're part of, part of this prophecy. And when it comes to the end times, basically he said, I'll let the prophecies sit that have already been spoken, but just know that this is about my reign. That's pretty profound, right? Um, but I, and I think we, we, you know, we, it helps to, to, I think, disentangle some of these strands, you know, um, you know, when it comes to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, right? And Jesus really laments over the city. Like I would have gathered you in, but you said no, right? And so the destruction comes based on your choice, not mine because right? I wanted to gather you in and you said no. But because you said no, and Paul's very clear on this, right? Because the older son said no, the younger son is adopted in, right? You know, this is this time of the Gentiles. Now, there's this very controversial passage. I, I put my comments in brackets, in parentheses here. I tend to do that when it's I'm commenting on things. So, you know, it's a little bit more me than Benedict. Um, so when you see the parentheses, know that it's, I'm kind of like yakking about it a little more. Benedict through, throughout his theological career was a very strong advocate against the, the position, which I think has now been even kind of disowned by the church, that the old covenant was revoked, right? And so he wants to be very clear that the Old Testament was not revoked. Now, I want to put a little bit, I want to put some pieces together because there is an error that Benedict isn't saying, and, and I have an antidote to prove to you that he's not saying this. You could read what Benedict said, and it would make it sound like we're not supposed to share the gospel with the Jews, with, with individual Jews, right? Now, I have a friend who was actually working for the USCCB, and he took over after someone else had written a document saying that we should never evangelize the Jews. And under Benedict's, I'm sorry, it was under John Paul's pontificate, but, but it was Cardinal Ratzinger who called my priest friend to Rome to, to talk about how to address that error, right? So I know Ratzinger thought it was an error. He does not think that, you know, Jews should never be presented with the gospel. But let me give some nuances here, right? So there was a mission to the Jews that Jesus inaugurated, right? He himself, of course, engaged in that mission. And he said to, to his apostles to go to Judea, to Samaria, and to the Gentiles in that order. And actually the apostles is clear that Simon, Simon Peter, had the mission to the Jews. But what you also see unfolding in Acts of the Apostles is that the Jews said no. Now, we know that not, the, not all of them said no because the apostles were Jews, right? So, I mean, there, there was a kind of 
and, and the apostles even called themselves this, this remnant, right? So there's this remnant of the Jews who embrace the faith. And in some way they are the new Israel. Benedict even indicates that about, there's two major ways to read the Old Testament, the rabbinical way or the Christian way. And they're both kind of legacies of the first century Jews, actually. We don't tend to think of that way, but, but that's actually accurate, right? Um, and so there's a certain point in which that historical mission to the Jews was closed. And the church is now focusing primarily on the mission to the Gentiles. Now, there's a steady stream of, of Jewish converts throughout the centuries. That includes even to today. But what Benedict is trying to say is, we recognize the validity of the old covenant still. What that fully means, we don't even know. But Paul says that the Jews will be converted as a group at the end, after the time of the Gentiles is complete, and the number of the Gentiles is full. Um, and so there's this mysterious way in which the church says, okay, our focus at this point is the mission ad gentes. It doesn't mean that we don't baptize Jews when they ask for it, and we don't ever talk to them about the faith, but there's not the same kind of mission to the Jews that we have as a mission to the Gentiles. So I just wanted to kind of parse that out because I think the way he treated that briefly is open to misunderstandings. You can read Ratzinger's writings about the Jews much more fully if you're interested in that, and that'll clear up some of that misunderstanding there as well. Okay. Um, the last thing that he says about the eschatological discourse is he said it's actually a lot about vigilance, and this is important for us in Lent. All of these predictions about the destruction of Jerusalem, well, that was to the early community to be vigilant. And so they left the city because they, they listened to Jesus' prophecy. That's an historical point of record, by the way, to, to prove that Jesus really did predict the destruction of the city and his disciples listened. But it's also vigilance for us. We do not know the day nor the hour. And so the son of man must come and find us ready. And we don't have anything to fear, right? I think some people get kind of freaked out about the end. Christians always look to that day with hope and joyful expectation. Maranatha, come Lord. That was a joyful prayer of expectation. And I think that's what we should ultimately take from this prophecy. All right. Now just a little bit more about the washing of the feet, because we did talk about this a bit, but I, I want to just draw a couple of things out here. Uh, Benedict sees this as an embodiment of Jesus' whole ministry. I who am the son have come and made myself the slave the servant, right? And those words are, are interchangeable, right? Servant or slave in, in the Greek. I have emptied myself. And he calls this a sacramentum. What does that mean? Like sacrament. Sacramentum translate the Greek, translate the Greek word mysterion. It is, is this great mystery of who Christ is and what he does. Isn't that what Benedict said he wanted to write about in these volumes? Who Jesus is and what his message is, right? So who he is, what he does, and that includes his teaching. That's all embodied in the great sacramentum, the great mystery, which is unveiled in the washing of the feet. It's, a, it's really big. And, and we even call Holy Thursday, Moundy Thursday. And of course, we'll talk about this again, but we're seeing it here. And the Moundy comes from the, the mandatum, the, the, the command to, to serve one another, to love one another as he has loved us. So it's an embodiment of the mystery, but it is also an exemplum a model, not for us just to imitate. And we've seen this a few times, right? We actually can't imitate Christ. What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would be the divine son of the father, right? You know, <laughs> and so for us to really imitate Christ, right? We must 
be drawn into Christ. This is this remaking of our very being. And he says this so beautifully on page 64. Um, he says, you know, any moral effort on, a, on our own would fail. But he says, we have the gift of being with and being in Christ. That is how we can do what he does and even do greater things, as he said, than he did. It is through this being with and being in Christ. It's an ontological. That means it's, it's, it's a mystery that reaches down to the very depth of our being. I want to say one last thing. This is maybe another little pet peeve of mine, but oh well. Um, is that when we talk about Judas, let's just talk about what the scripture says, right? There's all, I mean, it's, it's insane how much speculation there is about Judas and why he did what he did and whatever. And it's like, the gospels tell us why he did what he did. He was a thief and he wanted money. <laughs> that is what the gospels say, right? And so he literally sells Jesus. He sells his Lord. And, you know, one of the things that, that came out, and I, I gave you this little homily uh, about from the second anniversary of John Paul II's death, right? And, and there is this comparison of the, the, the cost of um, the nard that was used to anoint his feet and the amount of money that Jesus gained in selling his Lord. And Judas took a fraction of that amount, right? So he wanted the, the precious nard, that ointment to be sold to the, you know, so he said it could go to the poor, but he actually wanted to steal the money. And so instead you know, he, he doesn't get that whole sum, right? That year's worth of wages, right? He, he gets like, I think it was like a 10th of that amount in selling Jesus. So it's actually really pathetic. Um, and Benedict says that, what does John say? That Satan entered him. All these people, they, they, they want to try to justify Judas. Now, Benedict had said in the first volume that there was maybe some indication that he himself was a zealot, right? Um, and so if that's true, I mean, uh, maybe that could be seen as a factor, but it's not drawn out in the passion narratives at all, right? Is that it says that he's a thief, he wants money, and he, and he betrays Jesus for money, and that he's moved to do so by Satan. And that he does repent, but his repentance, right? He repents to say, I have done wrong, but his repentance is not a conversion, which is what makes him different than Peter. So all, all I'm really saying by this is we can learn from what the gospel teaches and attend to the details, but we should not misread the gospels by inserting, I think, our, our own opinions or sometimes even wishful thinking, you know, um, into the gospel narrative. So we'll end, you know, my reflections there. Sorry, I did go a bit long, but there's just so much to say with the beginning of Lent and the, and the richness of these passages but you know why? Why don't we? Since there was so much talk about Lent, both in the in the the pre-class discussion and then in, in my remarks, why don't we start there? I mean, is there anything in particular from our reading that stood out to you for entering more deeply into our Lenten exercises? James, yeah, go ahead. Yes, Doctor. You know when they when the, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness for learning how not to be slaves and how to depend on God. The destruction of when David was king, he was king for 40 years so that they learned 
how not to be tribal and how to unite it as a kingdom. When Jesus came and cleaned out the temple, um, from his passion to the destruction of the physical temple, almost 40 years, perhaps to learn to move from the slavery of the law to being servants of the faith. And I think I think that's what Lent does for us. It it moves us from being parasitical in our in our actions to a real conversion experience in encountering Christ when he washes our feet. I I just that when you said we don't know why it was 40 years and it that just kind of hit me like like uh, could you comment on that maybe if Maybe I'm on the wrong track here or something. No, I, I think that's a beautiful connection. And, and you know, Benedict, the dating is very difficult, but he even dates the, the crucifixion around the year 30. So that in that sense, it literally would be 40 years. But I mean, I did give a reason. I said it was so that the church could grow in those years oh, yeah. surrounding Jerusalem. So I said, that's the best reason that I can come up with. So in a way, I think that would be in accord with what you said that there could be this time of this kind of growth of the church and this pulling out. So you were giving this image of, of leaving, you know, outward slavery behind to enter into spiritual freedom. And that is the move from the old law into the new law. And, and isn't that what we're supposed to do during Lent, right? Leave a slavery to material things behind to enter into a freedom in Christ who is the slave of slaves, right? In the sense that, that he makes himself our own servant and teaches us that that is the path to freedom. Cheryl, go ahead. Um, for a help in my Lent this year, I was really struck by this section on page 48, where he talks about our Lord talking about the watchful doorkeeper. And I had never thought about vigilance as quite this definition before when he says, um, Benedict says, we see clearly what is meant by vigilance, not neglecting the present, or speculating on the future, or forgetting the task at hand, but quite the reverse. It means doing what is right here and now, as is incumbent upon us in the sight of God. That's going to be really great for me because so often I enter light with this kind of, oh my gosh, I've got to do this or do that, or I'm trying to, instead of being settled, if you know what I mean, by realizing that what I need to do is just focus on the task of growing in holiness and the church has enough suggestions and helps that I can just focus and do it. So anyway, I, that struck me. And, you know, it makes me think in terms of that vigilance as rest, you know, of like John laying his head upon the breast of Jesus and you know, how did Jesus bring about freedom for us, right? It was this agape, this pouring out of love. And, and I think that's how we can really come to freedom through Lent is love, right? Mm -hmm. Let's let's focus on that, um, spending this time with Jesus. If it's an ontological change of our being, right? It's Benedict says it's love that brings about that change in, in us. Thomas, uh, go ahead. Um, I, I think it's the same thing Cheryl was saying, but on, on page 64, he's talking about um, you know, it, it all depends on our eye being absorbed into his. It is no longer I who live, which you, which you talked about. And, um, you know, preparing for Lent, I'm thinking about all these things I'm going to do. And, you know, like 
but it's not just the outward thing. We can't we can't do it ourselves. It's it's something God has to do, as you're speaking about. You know, it's something God we have to let God do in us. But I, I don't know exactly what the relate. We still have to do things, though. I mean, we can't just I say, know. okay, I'm not right. gonna do, I'm not gonna do anything. Uh, I'll just let God do everything. So that's right. Because um, you know what Father said about fasting is so very true, right? And and I think what is the purpose of it? It's it's not the doing of something. I like to think of it as making space, right? You know, losing dependence on those things and opening up space for God. Yeah, who we really depend on. Yeah, yeah. The it, it, the I, I've been thinking about a phrase that Father mentions. If people maybe miss it in the pre-class, but the, that we're giving up things that may be of low nutritional value, but uh, that maybe includes the really healthy stuff that we're eating. If we think that it, you know, is us feeding ourselves and not dependent on God. Uh, Keith, go ahead. Uh, yes, doctor. As, as I was reading, the, uh, especially at the end of the last uh, chapter on the washing of the feet, it kind of connected the washing of the feet with confession. Mm-hmm. And um, as in, in one particular line I picked up, um, and uh, hopefully it says, in confession, the Lord washes our soiled feet over and over again and prepares us for table table fellowship with him. And I guess it really struck me because uh, sometimes we just, you know, you look at the washing of the feet, you're just cleaning yourself. But it's much, much deeper than that. As I start to read through this last few paragraphs in that ending chapter, the importance of confession. And it's, 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 we're actually bathing our entire self. And uh, that's one of the things I kind of picked up as we think about upcoming Lent and and everything that we need to do that this is such a critical portion of it and not only just during lent but throughout the year and i mean if you haven't been in confession in a while right this this is our requirement to go to confession at least once a year during lent right so this is the key moment right if you're due take advantage of lent for for that washing of the feet yeah, um, uh, mary just read in the chat in the, in the destruction of the temple saint gregory speaks of the patience of god that some customs came to an end and uh, as he allows others to continue change uh, is not always easy um, and we have to expect it not to make all changes at once and that god is patient with our growing up mm-hmm. that approach to lent and to these various periods of waiting and transformation that that you know james connected to it's yeah. excellent yeah um doctor could you could you uh question about the phrase uh expiation or the term expiation i just grabbed it that's on page 39 uh for context um just as could you explain a little bit of uh of what's going on here like with the daily atonement and the bull and that he's talking about he says um the greek word being translated as expiation is illustrion um and, and what's the connection to jesus here right so once a year um, on the, the the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. That's the only time during the entire year that anyone would go into the Holy of Holies. It could only be the high priest. And he would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the, the, the lid. And you think of the top of the lid, right, in between the, the, the seraphim here. Um, and he would sprinkle blood there. And that was called the, the hilasterion. And so Benedict is saying that, and, and that was meant, of course, to atone for the sins, right, of, of Israel for the, the whole previous year. 
And so if Jesus is the new temple, as I kept asserting, right? Um, Paul is making that connection, Benedict is saying. So he's looking at Romans 3 um, to say that, and this is a quote from Paul here, right? Since they all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as this hilasterion. So he is this new mercy seat. What is the hilasterion, right? This, this lid where the blood is sprinkled for the atonement of sin, right? That's called, why it's called a mercy seat because God shows mercy when the, the blood is sprinkled there. So Jesus is this mercy seat. It's called expiation, right? Expiation means to, is making atonement for, right? But you just don't get that, that sense in the English, right? Expiation by his blood. So it's not the blood of bulls, right? But it's his own blood, which is sprinkled to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over our uh, former sins, right? So Jesus is the new Passover. So you see a connection both to the day of atonement and to the Passover that is being used by Paul. And what Benedict is trying to say here is that Paul wrote that letter before the destruction of the temple. And so it's not like once a temple was gone, then all of a sudden Christians are like, oh no, what do we do now? Now that there's no temple, how will sins be atoned for? He said that, no, 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 no. Long before that, they already knew that Jesus was the new temple and that his sacrifice had replaced all of the old sacrifices and that his body had replaced the old temple and that his Passover replaced the old Passover. And so that's what Benedict was doing there. But the, the, the reference to the Hilasterion is to show that there is actually an indication within Paul's letters of Jesus being the new temple. That's awesome. Laura just put a great, great line in here that I'm going to actually turn into a question. She, she said she was really struck about the focus on the Gentiles in conversion uh, in the early church uh, versus the Jews. Um, she says she's thought and said in her Bible study on many occasions in our current times, I feel a special relationship with our Jewish brothers and sisters that God has a special plan for them as we transition from the Old Testament law to the fulfillment of it in the New Testament. My question then would be, you know, what what should that special relationship look like for us as individuals on the ground? Like how how ought we in in Benedict's vision here uh, treat the Jews one on one personally, our, our brothers and sisters? Right, and I, I think we should feel that right as the the elder brothers and sisters that you know what are they adhering to a genuine covenant given to them by God? Right, they're not pagans. Right, they're not heretics, right? They they are adhering to that. There's some, I mean, I, I hear theologians going back and forth, right, to say, okay, but rabbinical Judaism as we know it arose in rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, be that as it may, um, which I think there's some truth to that. Um, but nonetheless, it's not like Jews are necessarily, you know, rejecting him by maintaining this valid covenant covenant given to them by God. Um, so yeah, a lot of respect and we obviously can learn from them even in the interpretation of the old Testament. So I think there can be, um, continued, not only respect, but even discussion of the old Testament and its meaning. And, and within the context of fraternal dialogue, I think it's very appropriate to witness to our faith and to show how we do interpret the old Testament in, in light of the new, I think it's if they're willing to listen, right? I think that's that's very appropriate. Um, 
But Benedict, of course, being a German who grew up during the time of the rise of the Nazis, and he was a seminarian during World War II and was forced into support for an anti-aircraft unit, right? So he's very sensitive to this, that anti, well, anti-Semitism is racial, right? And so we have to reject every form of racism, not rational, and it's not Christian. But he also is very clear that we cannot have anti-Judaism. Now that's religious-based, right? So anti-Judaism is, is different, although it can be related to anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism, of course, has no place for Christians, but neither does anti-Judaism. Um, and so I think he, he has worked very hard because he saw, you know, the atrocities um, within Germany and beyond, of course, to try to repair just like a, a good relationship of respect and honor between Christians and Jews. And I think we can really applaud him for that and learn from it and, and try to emulate it. You made such a good point about the the difference in Old Testament interpretation going back all the way to the first century. It's probably not the case that we're going to argue uh, argue somebody into a different interpretation with two thousand years of tradition intervening. You know, it'll be that encounter with Christ in our person that will. I mean, however, though, right? I mean, the, I mean, the the prophecies of the Old Testament continue to make converts, and I think of even uh, two brothers. Um, in Southern France, who are rabbis, who said the book of Daniel teaches when the Messiah will come. And so it, it, we're going to read the book of Daniel. We're going to figure this out. And they, they sat down and they did the calculation of, of the, the weeks, you know, and, and so they came to the conclusion that the Messiah is Jesus or there's no Messiah. And they became Catholic priests, right? You know, and that was in the 19th century. And um, I, I, I want to say their names, but I'm afraid I would get it wrong. But, you know, um, but you can look, you can look up that story. And I mean, there's, there's really beautiful conversions, right? If you go to the shrine of the miraculous metal in Rome, um, right by the Trevi fountain, right? There's the apparition of our lady to a Jewish man whose brother had already, I think, become Catholic and he was trying to refute him. But his brother said that he should go into that church and pray the memorare for like a novena of days and, and, and our lady appeared to him. So listen, it's not like God doesn't want Jews to become Christians. But I think we've recognized that based on Paul's teaching in, in Romans like 13, that there is a mysterious way in which the conversion of the Jews is part of God's plan and it will follow upon the conversion of the Gentiles. Um, and so, like I said, it's an error to say that, oh, we shouldn't witness our faith to, to the Jews. But I think what Benedict is trying to say is that the church right now is not like, we need to go and convert you know, the, the Jews as a whole right now. He's saying, no, the church has discerned like, no, right now we need to take the gospel to all nations. And in the meantime, we should, like I said, have this kind of respect and, and honor for Jews as our older brothers with the faith of Abraham. Uh, Andrew up here on screen, go ahead. Yes, uh, my question concerns the uh, rebuilding of the third temple. Uh, I wonder, is it, a, is it an aspiration, a hope of Jews in general to, for them to rebuild the third temple? Or is it only certain sectors, certain segments of the Jews, certain segments of Judaism? And when they go to the Wailing Wall, I mean, are they mourning and they, 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 the loss of the temple and with the hope that they are able to build a new temple? That's the first part of the question. Second part yeah. is really connected to this, is that I'm, I'm very puzzled that there are many uh, Protestants, evangelicals, 
who are very supportive of, of building the third temple and rebuilding the Jews. So I'm quite puzzled. Do, do, they, do they not see Jesus as a new temple and there's no role for a for the third temple in Christianity? Well, why don't you comment on this? Ooh, okay, those are some good ones there. All right. So there, there were two attempts to rebuild the temple that Benedict even mentions them in our reading. Uh, in the revolt of Barak Kokhba, um, there was a Jewish attempt, and 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 at that point, you know, Jews were even no longer allowed to come into the now pagan city um, that was rebuilt over Jerusalem after that attempt. Um, and then, actually, the the Eastern Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate. Well, I mean, he was Roman Emperor, we should say, but he was based in the East. Um, he he was an apostate because he abandoned Christianity and reverted to paganism. And he wanted to show that the temple had not been supplanted by Jesus. And so he started to rebuild the Jewish temple and a mysterious fire broke out during the construction. And so the construction was abandoned. And then he died shortly after that in battle, which was seen as the judgment of God, of course, you know. Um, now, in terms of the desire of current Jews, it's, it's very complex and controversial um, the Temple Mount is actually under the care of Muslims currently. And, and there is a mosque, which was a crusader church originally on the Temple Mount. When I visited it, I, I tried to kind of walk over into a restricted area without realizing it. And I had machine guns waved at me and everything by um, Muslim men on the Temple Mount. And then, of course, there's the Dome of the Rock, you know, which is scholars think that the, the rock within the Dome of the Rock probably was the area of the altar in the temple. And anyway, some Jews think that possibly the Ark of the Covenant could be hidden within the Temple Mount area, even though the book of Maccabees says that it was hidden um, by Jeremiah um, at Mount Ebo, actually. But, um, but nonetheless, so there's some uncertainty about that. And so some Orthodox Jews will, will not go there because they're afraid to walk like where the area of the Holy of Holies was, and they're uncertain where that should go. And so, so even of the most Orthodox Jews, right, it's a very controversial point, but there are some Jews who, yes, do indeed want to rebuild the temple um, and, and to, to restart animal sacrifices. But, but that's also difficult, right? Because there is, there are people who still say like, I am a descendant of David, right? I am in the Levitical line and so, so forth. And, but even that is hard to verify, of course, you know? So it's, it's very complex and difficult actually. And I would say that there are some Christians, well, one, I think some Protestants are not very good at reading the Bible, um, that they don't read the Bible, you know, with authority. They don't read the Bible in light of tradition. And oftentimes they don't read the Bible with the historical context that Benedict keeps insisting upon. And so sometimes they have very bizarre interpretations. And there are some contemporary Protestants who view the restoration of the state of Israel and the temple as something that needs to happen for the second coming. And I, I mean, we would probably say that, you know, the nations have not all been converted yet, but I think they think because of their bizarre theological principles that somehow that this will bring about the end times, you know? So it's almost like the Iranians, right? They, they think that there's going to be some apocalyptic war that'll bring the 12th Imam back um, to earth to lead uh, Muslim nations. And so they're actually eager to bring about this apocalyptic war. And, 
and you think that you know some uh, American Protestants seem kind of set on some similar idea through the state of Israel. Um, Lisa writes in saying that they were taught in Evangelism Explosion, uh, a program that tetelestai was the word stamped on bills to mean it is paid for. And this, of course, you know, fits into Calvin's transactional salvation. Uh, but Ratzinger brings in agape and obviously interprets this very differently. Um, is, th- is that a bad translation? It is paid for. No, but but I I think telos, it's like logos, right? When you think of all the different meanings and the richness of the word logos and the word telos, which is related, you know, you just think of what does it mean to complete something? You can bring it to payment. You can bring it to fulfillment. You can bring it to, to completion. It is consummated is is another translation of that, actually. And so, and and there's evidence for translating what Jesus said is it is consummated. And with the kind of marital, not exclusively though, right? You know, but but you could make a connection to the consummation of a marriage as he's marrying his bride. It is paid for. Sure, it is. The debt's paid for. It is consummated. It is finished. It is completed. Those are all valid translations, but we should look at them all together because they all help us to understand an aspect of the mystery. My theology of salvation is a whole course, a whole ICC course on its own to, to you know, unpack all of these different images that we use, these different models of, of salvation that, yeah, a lot of people hone in on one to the exclusion of others. And the Catholic view is, is, is very different. It, uh, it, let's maybe end with this question for Mary. This is just a great one, especially for, for you, Dr. Stout, maybe to take it uh, into Lent with some, some parting words uh, on that topic. She just asks if you can talk a little bit more about Pope Benedict's discussion of the relationship between the idea of sacramentum and exemplum and this idea you know, of, of divinization in Christianity versus Christianity as a mere moral marathon that only a few can achieve. Yeah, I, I would say there's no exemplum that is like an example without the sacramentum, right? Because what's the idea of a sacrament? It's, it's not just a symbol of something, but that that thing becomes present to us. And the, the, the unfolding of the sacramentum, this great mystery of redemption in Christ, is something that unfolds within us that we are drawn into Christ and therefore become Christ. I mean, that, that, that's what Benedict was saying when my eye is drawn into his eye. Is my eye extinguished? No, I become more myself when I become one with Christ. The two become one. There is a marriage, as I was just saying, and, and the Eucharist. He gives his flesh to me. The two become one flesh. It is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because he loved us to the end, he purchased us as bride, right? He paid the dowry. <laughs> we can connect this all back together, right? And, and as we become one with him, he gives us everything. He, he holds nothing back. All that I have is yours. The Father is yours. The Spirit is yours. My body is yours. My mind is yours. Paul says, we have the mind of Christ at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. It's all ours. And so we're divinized by becoming one flesh, right? This is the way that he does it. We become members of the body, but this is the body of the son. And the son is the one who proceeds from the father and from whom the spirit comes with the father. 
And so his humanity is this road into his divinity. And we, like I said, we do not just imitate Jesus. What would Jesus do? You would never know. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that Jesus always did in the gospels was surprise his disciples. They're like, oh, I know what Jesus is going to do. What, what, oh, what, what did he do that for? You know? And so what would Jesus do? I um, pour himself out, you know? And that's what we have to do. All right. You know, we, we become Christ to our spouse. We become Christ to our children. We become Christ to our coworkers. We become Christ to our fellow parishioners. We become Christ to our neighbors. That is the exemplum. It's not like, I'm just going to do my darndest to, you know, take up my cross this Lent. I, I hope it's better than last Lent, you know? No, there's, there's a, a mystical identity here with Christ. And so what is the heart? And we have prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. These three things are very much related, but, but it's prayer. Because the goal of prayer is union with God. And if we have union with God, well, then we can stop eating food, right? Because, you know, Jesus said, I have bread of which you do not know, right? In John's gospel, they're like, what? It's like, what, what's he hiding from us? And it's like, yeah, they don't know that bread, but that's the bread that we must eat during Lent. You know, the bread that Jesus has, uh, you know, the daily bread that he gives us, that, that we live off of, the bread of the spirit. Um, and then we can stop eating as much. And if we stop eating as much, we give that bread to those who have no bread. But without the communion at the beginning, right? The, the communion through the, the bread of the flesh of Christ, right? Then there's no real fasting because it's not just us, you know, just, uh, I'm just going to stop eating, right? You know, it's like, no, this has to be something that flows from communion. And then, then it extends to our neighbor. That's where the almsgiving has to follow, Right? It is not a genuine Lent if, if we're not giving alms. And if you say, I have no money, well, there are alms that you can give. There are There is something you can give to your neighbor in need. Every single person can give something to someone else in need, whatever that happens to be. But it may not be a million dollars, you know, and that's fine, you know. But you have something that your neighbor needs that you can give to your neighbor. And, and that comes out of agape, of the communion that we have with the Holy Trinity that, that overflows into the, the dying of ourselves to the world because we're living to God. And then the enlivening of our neighbors through the charity that flows from Christ through us to them. Right. So that's kind of the whole picture, right? But it, but it absolutely is the sacramentum becoming an exemplum in us through the conformity, the union with Christ in prayer. It's simply excellent. That's fantastic. And we, we have our marching orders then. Here we go. Lent starts in two days. So this is great. This is great. Can you uh, close us out in prayer today? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, you have said without you, we can do nothing. But we know that with you, we can do all things. And we ask that during this time of Lent, that you would renew your life in us that you would make us clean, that you would give us your food to eat, that we would give up some of the food of this world and that we would feed those who need our help. Please lead and guide us in all things that they may be for your glory and our good. And together we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. 
Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.